Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya November 13th, 2017, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3. Chapter 26, Fundamental Principles of Material Nature, Text 72. Tamasmin Prachagatmanam Dhyaya Yoga Pravrittaya Bhaktya Viraktya Jnanena Vivichatmani chintayet. Tum. Upon him. Asmin. In this. Pratyak Atmanam. The Super Soul. Dia. Yeah. With the mind. mind. Yoga Pavritaya. Yoga Pavritaya. Engaged in devotional service. Bhaktya. Through devotion. Viraktya. Through detachment. Jnanena. Through spiritual knowledge. Vivitya. Considering carefully. Atmani. In the body. Chintayet. One should contemplate. One should contemplate. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Therefore, through devotion, detachment, and advancement in spiritual knowledge, acquired through concentrated devotional service, one should contemplate the Supersoul as present in this very body, although simultaneously apart from it. Purport. One can realize the Supersoul within oneself. He is within one's body, but apart from the body, or transcendental to the body. Although sitting in the same body as the individual soul, the super-soul has no affection for the body, whereas the individual soul does. One has to detach himself, therefore, from this material body by discharging devotional service. It is clearly mentioned here, bhaktya, that one has to execute devotional service to the Supreme. As is stated in the first canto, second chapter of Srimad Bhagavatam 127, Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojitaha. When Vasudeva, the all pervading Vishnu, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, is served in completely pure devotion, detachment from the material world immediately begins. The purpose of Samkhya is to detach oneself from material contamination. This can be achieved simply 
by devotional service to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. When one is detached from the attraction of material prosperity, one can actually concentrate his mind upon the Supersoul. As long as the mind is distracted toward the material, there is no possibility of concentrating one's mind and intelligence upon the Supreme Personality of Godhead or his partial representation, Supersoul. In other words, one cannot concentrate one's mind and energy upon the Supreme unless one is detached from the material world. Following detachment from the material world, one can actually attain transcendental knowledge of the Absolute Truth. As long as one is entangled in sense enjoyment or material enjoyment, it is not possible to understand the Absolute Truth. This is also confirmed in Bhagavad Gita. One who is free from material contamination is joyful and can enter into devotional service, and by devotional service he can be liberated. In the Srimad Bhagavatam first canto, it is stated that one becomes joyful by discharging devotional service. In that joyful attitude, one can understand the science of God or Krishna consciousness. Otherwise, it is not possible. The analytical study of the elements of material nature and concentration of the mind upon the Supersoul are the sum and substance of the Sankhya philosophical system. The perfection of the Sankhya Yoga culminates in devotional service unto the Absolute Truth. Uh, just, I just need to do something for one moment here, please. If you can just uh, stay with me for a moment, please. Uh, just, again, if you can give me one moment. Okay. Thank you. Tamasmin Pratyagatmanam Diya Yoga Pravitaya Bhaktya Viraktya Jnane Na Vivichatmani Chintayet Therefore, through devotion, detachment, and advancement in spiritual knowledge acquired through concentrated devotional service, one should contemplate that Supersoul as present in this very body, although simultaneously apart from it. So, here again we're told, as we are many times, that the Supreme Lord is so close to us that he's in our heart, that he's right there in our heart. He's, he's closer than our, our own heart. He's closer than our own breath. He's, he's there with us constantly. In fact, he's even there with us if we're not in the body, if, if we're just in the subtle body. He's, in the heart doesn't just mean something physical. He's always our companion. And yet we're striving so hard to see God, to feel God, to hear God, and to, to smell God, to be in the presence of God. This is our, our struggle. And I, just like George Harrison wrote in his very famous song, I really want to see you, but it, it takes so long. You know, it seems to be this difficult, difficult road to find God. He seems very far away. And we read the Isha Upanishad, he's far away, but he's very near. But I think generally for a conditioned soul, it seems mostly that he's just simply far. And we're told he's, he's not far. He's, he's right there. He's right there. You know, just like we all have the experience sometimes that we're looking for someone and they're sitting right next to us. Well, they're in the same room. Oh, where is this person? Oh, they're right there. They're right there. Or, I mean, my mother would look for her reading glasses. Oh, mother, they're, they're on your head. You know, <laughs> where, where is my phone? It's in your pocket. Uh, we're, we're looking and looking and looking, and, and it's right there. And there's this sort of theme that what we're looking for is right there. 
is is present just in some way, in some I can kind of you could say metaphorical way, in a lot of literature. You know, even I remember growing up watching The Wizard of Oz once a year, and, and Dorothy, you know, she's traveling, and and then she decides that everything she wanted was already in her own home. That that kind of concept, that what what we're seeking, what we're going after, what we're looking for, is something that we already have. Uh, that uh, it, it's not necessarily to to go to a sacred place, uh, to visit a temple, to it, to go to a Himala- Himalayan cave, or He's already there. And you can say, well, all right, great. That, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a nice concept. I can understand it philosophically. I can understand it intellectually. I can repeat it for an exam. Where is God? He is in my heart. You know? <laughs> I, I, can, I can say that and I can even believe it on some level. But how do I experience it? What do I do to experience it? So this it's a very interesting uh, verse, and I'd say particularly this purport is interesting because it, it, it seems to be a little circular. You need to do this, if we need to do A, before you can do A, you need to do B, but before you can do B, you need to do A. And so I, I looked at it and, and found that it wasn't really like that. It, it really was giving a path. And we should keep in mind that the particular path given in this purport is not necessarily the only way that one would progress to this experience of, of God with us all the time. There's, and it's funny, I, I hadn't taken this one, but going through the, the Bhagavatam and the works of the Acharyas, I've identified over 20 different ways that the path is described. And of course, these ways have something in common, but they're they're all looking at something somewhat different. And this the one in this purport is not something I had I had found. I was thinking I should add this to the list. So this is another way that the path is described, and it's it's very important when we discuss this path today, which we'll do briefly, that we keep in mind that this is again just one explanation. That the the path can be different for different people is different for different people. In one sense, each individual we're, we're very personal philosophy. In one sense, each individual is going to have their own unique unfolding of Krishna consciousness. I mean, even in a material sense, if you have 20 children to whom you're trying to teach the concept of percentage, so they're all going to come to that understanding at a different point in the class. It's not like there's going to be at minute 304. (laughs) There was a a system of of education run by a Christian group in America, a Becca, I don't know if they still do it like this, but I remember going to one of their training seminars and they bragged that if you went to their flagship school, they had, say, four classes in the third grade, third standard, and or year three, whatever you call it, in whatever part of the world you're from. And if you went to any of these classes at 11.04, the teacher would be doing the same thing. And I thought, oh, wow, that's horrible. <laughs> Why do you need a teacher, you know, just have a robot or something? And so it's not like that. And even if the teacher in every third grade class is doing the same thing at 11.04, I'll tell you, not all the students in all those classes are doing the same thing. So when we come to, to realization, and how we come to realization, I mean, one of the things you learn as a teacher is that there's more than one teaching method, and if a student doesn't learn with one method, then you try a different method. And so Krishna is certainly do that. So, so please, let's keep this in mind. So here Srila Prabhupada starts with service. The first thing that one has to do 
is some devotional service. We often call this agyata sukriti. Now, sukriti, kirti just means pious activity. Sukriti means, or kirti just means activity, sorry. Sukriti means uh, pious activities. And so one could think that sukriti in this connection is referring to karma. But no, it's referring to something that's devotional. Agyata is without knowledge. You don't really know what you're doing. You haven't really, you're completely asleep in illusion. As we read many times in the Bhagavatam, that someone who's in illusion is compared to that, that they're in a, a sleeping condition. So let's say you open the door for a saintly person, or you give a donation to a saintly person, you speak well of the saintly person, you go to some place of worship and you uh, bow down to the Lord. I mean, there's so many ways in which one can do service unknowingly. You take a little of the prasadam. So you do some kind of, of devotional service. As one progresses in devotional service, a one uh, comes to the point of doing knowing devotional service. And this knowing devotional service makes you joyful. It's, it's quite interesting that Srila Prabhupada says that by, one becomes joyful by discharging devotional service. In that joyful attitude, one can understand the science of God or Krishna consciousness. Otherwise, it is not possible. So you can, we can say very clearly, without ambiguity, without hedging, that one must become joyful. And the, one of the first symptoms of sadhana bhakti is kleshagni, the destruction of the kleshas, the destruction of sinful reactions. Now, this joyfulness does not mean, much to our regret, I suppose, that we no longer externally experience the sufferings of this material world in a technical form. In other words, becoming joyful does not mean that your health problems are all cured, your financial problems are all cured, your family problems are all, you know, you're, you're, you have no problem with your body and mind, you have no problem with your bank account, you have no problem with your family, you have no problem with your job, with your housing, with the weather. It doesn't mean that, that all of a sudden all the adhyatmic, adhidaivic, adhipotic have all disappeared in a gross sense. It's, it's, not, it's not what it means. But it means that in spite of those things, one becomes joyful. One starts finding one's happiness on a different platform. Now, materially, we all experience that if we're very happy about something, that the, the otherwise annoyances and problems in life don't affect us very much. You know, they just, just don't affect us very much. Somebody finds out they just you know, won millions of dollars and somebody in the office insults them. They're not going to care about it so much. They stub their toe and... I was speaking to one devotee the other day who's been chronically ill for many, many years and extreme pain and doing all sorts of things to try to get better without much success. And he said to me, you know, I, I just really prayed, what, how am I going to get free of this suffering? And then I heard a lecture from Prabhupada where he says, you are not going to be free from suffering in the material body. And I decided that I'm just not going to care. I'm just going to serve Krishna anyway. He said, and although the suffering has continued on a technical basis, he said, I no longer feel that I'm suffering. I remember my godbrother Sridhar Maharaj saying this famous quote, that pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. 
And when one becomes absorbed in the joy of devotional service, one no longer experiences the suffering of this world as suffering. It doesn't mean that one has no awareness of it at all, uh, especially we're talking about at a fairly beginning stage, but one doesn't have an awareness of it as suffering. And without this joyful stage, it is frankly impossible to go to the next stage of detachment. So from this joyfulness comes detachment. Now, Srila Prabhupada is making the point here that analytical knowledge and meditation, saying analytical study and concentration of the mind on the supersoul, so that's jnan or sankhya and jnan or meditation, is to achieve detachment. But that's not the the process exactly uh, that's being given here. We're being given detachment through devotion. But in both cases, it happens through joyfulness. I mean, if you study the people who really, and there aren't that many of them, but if you study the people who are real jnanis, who are real studies of, shank, of Sankhya philosophy, not just, I mean, and sometimes Prabhupada calls the jnanis mental speculators, but not just mental speculators, people who are doing philosophical speculation, people who are engaging the mind on the basis of Shastra, that they come to a point of joy. And the same happens with those who are, we have the the word jiya in this verse, those who are engaged in meditation. So those who are engaged in meditation also come to a state of joy. And I find it fascinating that even those who are engaged in Buddhist meditation, who are engaged in meditation on some sort of void, uh, just on the breath or something like that, that they also come to a state of joy. It's quite fascinating. They come to at least sattvagun. And from this joy, one gets automatic detachment. Our detachment follows almost effortlessly. So we have from service uh, comes joyfulness. From that joyfulness comes detachment. When I have a higher taste, parm drishpa nivartite, I automatically become detached. So detachment is not a question of just willfully repressing one's senses. One can come to detachment simply by philosophical discussion, but as I'm sure we've all experienced, that kind of detachment is not very steady. Then from detachment, interesting enough, Prabhupada in this purport takes us to analytical knowledge. So, you know, it it seems to be going, as I say, somewhat confusing. You can come to detachment through analytical knowledge, but Prabhupada here is giving, from detachment we come to analytical knowledge. And this is a very simple principle. When you're detached from something is the only time you really understand it. Again, we all have this experience that when we're very attached to enjoying something, we don't see it honestly. We don't see it for what it is. We find this in our own life. We certainly find this with other people. You'll have an experience with somebody who's doing something that's destructive. They're doing something that's harming themselves and you try to explain to them how the thing is harmful, but because they want to enjoy the thing, they're not able to really perceive how it's harmful. It, it just makes it impossible. You know, and when I was growing up, there was a song, when a, when a man loves a woman, she can do no wrong. And it's, it's like that for all of our material attachments. When we want to eke some pleasure out of it, then we cannot, we cannot really understand what's going on. We cannot really understand how is it that I'm not the body, how is it that material nature is working. And 
I, I know I had some experience of this, of the point of this, very soon after joining the Krishna Consciousness Movement and starting to chant Japa and going out and distributing Prabhupada's books in O'Hare Airport in Chicago, that all of a sudden I could understand things. I felt as if I hadn't been able to see my whole life and didn't know that I needed glasses and all of a sudden found out that I needed glasses and put them on and could see. Now, one very popular set of videos that's on the internet nowadays are deaf people who get cochlear implants and can suddenly see, or colorblind, suddenly hear, sorry, or colorblind people who get some special kind of glasses and they can suddenly see color. And they're just amazed. <laughs> you know, they just become very emotional that they can all of a sudden see. So once one becomes detached from enjoyment of the senses, and the way Shiva Prabhupada puts it here, is when one is detached from the attraction of material prosperity. So, what does this mean to become detached from the attraction of material prosperity? And again, this detachment is coming from joyfulness. So we have service that leads to joyfulness, to need for detachment. Well, why do we want material prosperity? We want material prosperity to experience rasa, to experience joyfulness. Rasa is really all the varieties of of joyfulness. We we get joy in uh, one of the seven secondary emotions, one of which is, of course, grief. (laughs) Uh, We've talked about this before, how one can enjoy grief um, through relationships, uh, friendship, etc. And how do we experience, how do we try to experience these rasas within material energy? We try to experience these, these rasas by trying to enjoy prosperity, opulence, fortune, separately from Krishna. Basically, we are trying to enjoy Sita without Ram, Lakshmi without Narayan, Radha without Krishna. We are trying to become the Lord ourselves. And it's something like, you know, you go to someone's house, not exactly to see them, but you enjoy their opulences. You hang out with a rich person, so you'll be able to eat fancy food and you know, fly on a private plane and something like that. So as long as one as long as one has this attachment to the opulences, one cannot see the world as it is, which is the energy of the Lord, and one cannot become detached from that propensity to enjoy. So what are these opulences? What is this prosperity? So of course prosperity comes in six main forms. The goddess of fortune, the goddess of of opulences, the goddess of prosperity. So I wanted to just very briefly go over these six forms because it's, although Prabhupada mentions it in the purport, it's a little tangential. So the first is Aishvarya. So Prabhupada often translates Aishvarya as wealth. But the literal meaning of Aishvarya is Ishvara, power and control. There is some implication of leadership, like being a leader of a country, an army, a business. This opulence could also mean having a lot of autonomy in one's life. Like some of us like to start and manage our own project, business, etc. You know, we might be energized by caring for many people in the sense of engaging those people in meaningful work, providing for them what they need. So if we thrive on this opulence, we might also generate for others. We might also help other peoples to become wealthy and opulent and powerful to gain control and autonomy. And as we say, Prabhupada often literally translates this as money because usually when we have uh, this opulence of power and control, uh, 
we also might enjoy making, investing, managing, and increasing money. And this could mean, you know, things not only just cash, but things like gardens, landscapes, home, art, food, uh, something that makes life rich with some kind of opulence, you know, color, fragrance, fabric. And Aishvarya particularly talks about being the lord of the world. So you could say Aishvarya epitomizes the idea of material prosperity. Then uh, the next item of prosperity is gyan, which is different from the kind of gyan or sankhya that's referred to in this verse. The prosperity of gyan is like intelligence, philosophy, science, uh, the hard and the soft science, the process of learning, the process of understanding, knowledge, knowing, and wisdom in itself, or the process of getting them. Uh, and the, the ultimate essence, the opulence of gyan, is knowing the essence of things, the meaning of things, the principle of truth. And we could say, and if you look on the Goryamat logo Bhaktisiddhanta designed, he put gyan opposite, graphically opposite to Aishvarya. And we could say that's because Gyan deals mostly with the mind and intelligence, and Aishvarya deals mostly with the body and the ego. And Gyan, of course, deals with humility. You have to know what you don't know. And Aishvarya deals with uh, believing that you know what's good for yourself and others as being a leader. So then we have the opulence of the other prosperity, other area of prosperity is Virya, which Bhaktisiddhanta places graphically next to Aishvarya. It literally means vitality and strength, and virya in Sanskrit is closely associated with particularly male sexuality, male prowess, male muscle strength. It can mean uh, sexual vitality for anybody. It's associated in a general way with strength, energy, determination, vigor, courage, of any kind. So it can, this is like muscle power in sports and warfare, um, anything requiring physical strength and endurance. Also, virya is needed for meditation and yoga, uh, mental strength. Now, Bhaktisiddhanta puts the prosperity uh, opposite from virya, and next again, he puts the uh, prosperity of Sri. And Sri is also, like Aishvarya could mean in general opulence and prosperity. Well, Sri also. Sri is a word that is often used synonymously with opulence or prosperity, and it's, of course, the name for Lakshmi Devi, who's the goddess of prosperity in general. Uh, so in one sense, you could say that Sri encompasses all the six kinds of, of prosperity or wealth. And the core meaning of Sri has to do with giving off light or radiance, with being, with being effulgence. It can mean beauty, grace, and splendor. Right? We often use Sri as a title of respect for both men and women, or used with names of, of God. So some kind of, of respect and the concept that this person is an opulent person. And therefore it has a somewhat of a connotation also of majesty or even ruling power. It's sort of the feminine counterpart of virya. And it deals with feminine beauty, romantic love, affection, care, and fine arts. Painting, sculpture, music, dance, theater, architecture, landscaping, uh, when there's some view of splendor. Then Bhaktisiddhanta graphically, between Virya and Sri, he puts yasha, and this is the prosperity of honor, glory, renown, praise, and respect. And the root of the word yasa means to spread, and also can indicate beauty. So sometimes we talk about beautiful people, the Beatles had a song about beautiful people, meaning someone whose fame is spread everywhere. So 
Yasha deals with prosperity of community, society, family, and friends, uh, that, that kind of wealth and richness in life. And in, in the Vishnu Purana 1731, there's a personality named Yasha who's the son of Kirti and Dharma. And this is interesting because Kirti refers to spoken words of praise and honor like Kirtan. And Dharma means what is, you know, what is right. So you could get Kirti, uh, Kirti alone it doesn't necessarily mean you've done anything wonderful. You know, there are famous people, like say someone like Paris Hilton, who, who hasn't done, as far as I know, anything particularly glorious. She's famous because her parents, her family owns hotels. So that's Kirti, she has some kind of fame. But Yasha is different. Yasha is other people glorifying you because you've done some kind of dharma. So it's, it's the prosperity that spreads from our own virtuous merits and deeds with others' praying. praise. So you could say a virtuous merits and deeds mean we're acting according to our roles in society. So yasha also means the prosperity we gain when honoring others for right action and intentions. Uh, it's, it's like a kind of a sense of dharma and a recognition for dharma. And then the, the last of the six types of prosperity, the most mysterious one, is vairagya, which Bhaktisiddhanta graphically puts opposite to yasha and between aishvarya and gyan. And vai means without, and raga means attachment, passion, interest, and emotion. And we have, of course, in today's verse, we have the word uh, viraktya, meaning uh, detachment. But here, detachment as a prosperity that one should be detached from. <laughs> one should be detached from the prosperity of detachment. Uh, it's not a repression or suppression, but an inner state of equanimity and freedom. Freedom from desires and aversion. It's a state of inner identity separate from all of our designations, sarvapati, vinimuktan. And separate from the designations, then it's separate from the expectations and duties of the world. Right, so that's why it's opposite to yasha. The prosperity of yasha is the prosperity of being praised for doing one's duties in the world, the kirti and dharma together. Whereas the opulence of vairagya is you're, you have no interest in what other people expect of you. You have no interest in other people's praise of you because you're not identifying with the world. So when you're enjoying the prosperity of vairagya, you, don't, you experience oneself as an observer of the body, mind, society, and the world instead of identing with them. If you find the prosperity of receiving and giving vairagya, one is enriched by a lack of ego, an ease of forgiveness, humility, and compassion, a sense of non-dependence on circumstances and others' perceptions for our security or happiness. And this prosperity, of course, leads, uh, gives dignity to the others. There has to be a little sense of honest humility added to that opulence for the opulence to be really attractive. Right? Um, the wealth of vairagya is distinct from the others as only vairagya cannot be lost through external circumstances or the actions of others. So uh, vairagya can not only mean this inner state, but can also mean a prosperity being satisfied with external simplicity and functionality in one's home and dress and so forth. It's, it's interesting that among the Varnas, both the Brahmanas and the Shudras tend to have some attraction to this prosperity of Vairagya. The Brahmanas in an internal sense, in terms of being forgiving and compassionate and detached material identity, and the Shudras in the sense 
of being satisfied with very simple externals, with not striving hard for wealth, for you know, for money and and and, all, and fame and all the things of the world. You know, I I go to my work, I I make my chairs, I come home, I watch my favorite show, I drink some beer, I have sex with my spouse, I go to bed and pet my dog, you know, and, and I'm happy. So this sort of simplicity, I'm happy with my simple with my simple life. I don't aspire for something more. So that's also kind of an enjoying of, um, of vairagya. So one has to be detached, Prabhupada makes the point here very clearly, one has to be detached from the attraction of material prosperity before one can concentrate one's mind on the super-soul. So in other words, one has to be detached from all six of these opulences before one can actually concentrate one's mind so we have, by doing service, one becomes joyful by having uh, this inner joy, this, this inner connection with the Lord to some degree, at some beginning level. Then we de- become detached from enjoying prosperity in any of its six forms, which gives us real knowledge. We're able then to see the world for what it is. When we have that real knowledge, then we can concentrate our mind upon the Lord. Why? Because we're not distracted by things. You know, we, we can try to not distract ourselves in a mechanical sense through jnana yoga itself. But that's very difficult. You ever wonder why Krishna spoke the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita? I mean, Arjuna had said, let me just leave, I'll live in the world by begging, I won't fight anymore. And then Krishna says, okay, you know, you want to do that, here's how you do it. And then Arjuna's like, whoops, that's a little hard. So how are we going to concentrate our mind when through service that leads to joy, that leads to detachment from trying to enjoy these six types of prosperity independently of the Lord? We get real knowledge, we get realized knowledge, and therefore we, we've lost our interest. Our mind no longer wanders to something that we have no interest in. That's pretty simple and obvious. And by concentrating our mind, then we have realized knowledge. So first we had analytical knowledge, now we have realized knowledge. Uh, we actually get to know and experience the Lord. This, it's at this point, after concentrating the mind, that we realize the presence of the Lord as the super-soul. Uh, we, we start experiencing that He's closer than our breath, closer than our heartbeat, uh, that he's, he's with us constantly. And then, and only then, are we rendering devotional service on uh, a platform that yadyatma supersedity that fully satisfies the self. One could make the argument that only at this platform is one rendering real devotional service, and the devotional service rendered up until that point is practice. In fact, we call it abhyas yoga or sadhana bhakti. So that's a whole discussion we won't have time to get into today. But just briefly, you know, when is devotional service? When does it begin? Uh, when is it real? And I, I often give the analogy, just like if you're going to be in a dramatic performance. So when does it start? Oh, well, the play starts when the audience is there with their paid tickets and the curtain opens, and that's when it starts. But you could say it starts when there's an idea in the mind of the producer. You could say it starts when the script has been written. You could say it starts when there's a casting call you can say it starts uh, when the, there's rehearsals and the costumes are being made. Uh, you know, 
So you could, at any of those points, you could say that the performance starts. But you can also say the performance only starts when the curtains open and the audience, the paid audience, is there. So the devotional service that starts, <laughs> in that sense, only starts when one actually realizes the Supreme. It doesn't really start before then. In another sense, you could say that it's the beginning of this whole uh, cycle. So again, the particular path that's being outlined here is first one engages in bhakti, in devotional service. That brings some measure of joy. Bhakti automatically brings some measure of joy. Why does it bring some measure of joy? Because as soon as one one is engaging in service, one gets some taste of something beyond the senses and the mind. Even a beginner gets some taste of something beyond the senses of the mind, which uh, brings actual joy. It brings a, a literal, actual experience of happiness to the soul itself, rather than the material happiness which just touches the body and the mind. That spiritual joy, that higher taste, gets us detached from wanting to enjoy material prosperity in any of its six forms. And that's a little tricky because some of us think, well, because I'm not interested in money, that means I'm not interested in material prosperity. Well, you might be interested in power, you might be interested in strength, you might be interested in, in splendor and, and, and beauty, you might be interested in family and community, you might even be interested in renunciation. And when, uh, through the progression of joyfulness, as joyfulness increases and our material detachment also uh, when our material attachment decreases, then we get really have analytical knowledge. Then we can really understand the world for what it is, and we have vairagya not as an item of material prosperity, but we have vairagya as uh, as just a natural concomitant factor. We're not trying to enjoy the the uh, the detachment, and nor does one have knowledge. This detachment and knowledge explained here are not the material prosperity of Gyan and vairagya. They are the spiritual component in connection with the Lord. Then from that one has concentration of mind, which again is not the virya of the material prosperity. It is the, the spiritual, the ultimate spiritual virya. These, these things, this, uh, these kinds of experiences are on the actual platform. Then from that one gets realized knowledge one actually realizes that God is here with me all the time, and from then, one's loving service blossomed. We might also mention that, what what does this mean, the difference between attachment to uh, the traction of material prosperity and the seemingly the same words of detachment, analytical knowledge, and concentrated mind? and then realize knowledge. It sounds like it's vairagya and jnana and jnana. And in fact, as I say, often the same words are being used. So I had an interesting discussion the other day with my friend Rukmini, who's, who's here in Hawaii, working with me on a book. And we were reopening the discussion about whether or not people should get paid for doing devotional service. We were looking at it in terms of one's career, one's varna, and also in terms of bhakti. So I've always had the contention that if you're a musician by trade, if that's your craft, we would want you as a, as a musician to sing songs all about Krishna. 
we would want, for example, we would want everyone in the world who's a musician to have their songs related with Krishna. We'd want everyone who's a dancer to have their dances related with Krishna. We'd want, you know, we'd want all the careers of the, of the world to be related with Krishna. That's what we would want. We would not want a world where everyone does a career unrelated with Krishna, makes money, and then does service for Krishna in a temple for free. Although sometimes people suggest such uh, a plan. So do your work that has no relation with Krishna, just take some of the money from your work and donate it, and then whatever service you do for Krishna, you do for free. And that, although such a policy may help an individual uh, to make sure that they're not doing service for some gross ulterior motive, it certainly isn't a very valuable plan for changing society in general. If we want to change society in general, all the occupations are still going to go on. I mean, not obviously all of them, but in general the occupations are still going to go on, but they're going to become spiritualized. So if you're a musician and you start singing songs about Krishna, you still need to get paid for your work. And that might look like you're getting paid to do devotional service. So are you doing devotional service and you're getting paid for it? Or is that your occupation, which you're spiritualizing? You know, which is it? And then, you know, it becomes this really fuzzy thing. And you start saying, well, you know, it depends on your consciousness. And Prabhupada didn't want ISKCON paying salaries to people. And, and it, it starts becoming really confused. And, and then we talked a lot about what... What is it that attracts us to a particular career? Well, what attracts us to a particular career is the particular kind of taste that we get from that job. Uh, one of the evidences of what our nature is is what we do without being paid and without being asked, something we have a natural taste for. In other words, we're enjoying some particular opulence or some particular combination of the opulences. And each of us find different opulences very tasty and others not so. You know, just like some people really like tangerines and other people don't. And some people really like bitter melon and other people don't. You know, we have ta a taste for certain opulences. Some people love Aishvarya. They love being a leader and powerful and, and helping people and, and controlling people and providing for people. And others are just like, gosh, I don't, I don't want to do that. I have, no, I have no interest in that. Some people like, you know, splendor of of art and music, and other people really don't care. You go in their room and there's no art on the walls at all. So we have, we have different tastes for things. And when we're doing our work, the ideal of society is that the work you do, the work you get paid for, the work that is your livelihood, is in accord with your nature. In other words, there's a match between the type of work you do and the type of prosperity, of these six types of prosperity, that one is getting from one's work. And what makes us relish our work is when we're getting rasa, a material perversion of rasa, of course, from the particular uh, prosperity that we like. So, you know, if, if you're, you're playing your mridanga and you're relishing the craft of playing the mridanga, you're relishing your musical expertise, the, the, the virya and the gyan and the shri, of your murdunga plank. That's what you're relishing. And you're also relishing, hopefully, uh, the holy name and that you're trying to please Krishna. But there's some mix of relishing pleasing Krishna and relishing your expertise, relishing your craft. 
And such is true even with the opulence of Gyan and Vairagya <laughs> and the opulence of Virya in being able to focus the mind in yoga. Just like Prabhupada says, the yogis enjoy the fact that they're controlling their senses. And I realized that myself, that when I would do like a near jal and chant 64 rounds, that a lot of what I was enjoying was I was enjoying the sense of mastery, the sense of virya. Oh, I can control my body. I can, I don't, I'm no longer this, you know, for 24 hours at least, I'm not the slave of my body, the master of my body. So that's enjoying a kind of expertise. So one enjoys one's renunciation. You know, I, I can live with just a box of stuff. I, I, don't, I don't need any stuff. I don't care what people think of me. I, I'm not part of any community. And you get some enjoyment of that freedom. So that, that craft, the renunciation, is part of the craft of certain occupations. Right? Virya is part of the craft of certain occupations. And if we're enjoying the craft of our occupation, then we're doing that as a varna, even if we're dedicating it to Krishna. However, if what we're relishing is the actual rasa of pleasing Krishna, and if the only reason we want any expertise in our craft is simply to please Krishna, not so we're enjoying ourselves, kartahamiti manyate, as the doer of the craft, then we're detached from material prosperity. And then we're no longer doing that service as an occupation, even if superficially we may be compensated for it in some way, even if you know, we're given a room to stay in and some prasadam to eat. So this detachment from prosperity uh, doesn't just mean that I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of money or something, otherwise every poor person would, would be in this category. That's not what it means. Or, you know, every low-grade shudra who really just doesn't care <laughs> whether or not they have much. Uh, so that, that's not what it means. It means that I'm, I'm not seeing myself as the doer. I'm seeing myself as, as the servant of Krishna. Again, that I have, I have expertise in my work. It's one of the 26 qualities of a devotee, Daksha. I'm expert in my work so that Guru and Krishna will be pleased. But I'm not relishing that expertise. I'm not relishing the, the rasa that comes, the sense of, of false, perverted rasa that accrues whenever I taste the prosperity, whenever I taste the the six items of Lakshmi Devi who become the six items of Durga Devi separately from Krishna in the mood of being the, the doer. So that's what it means to be detached from the attraction of material prosperity. All right, so how are we going to do this? We find ourselves somewhere in this cycle. At least I should be engaging in service. If I'm not feeling joyful by my service, uh, this joyfulness should come rather early on. Then there's some defect in how I'm doing service. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's not really service. I should also feel this natural detachment from these six opulences. My attachment should be more and more to Krishna. I should be getting more and more understanding of the scripture and the philosophy through detachment. Uh, that will enable me to concentrate my mind on, on the Lord, especially in our japa, our study of the shastra, our worship of the deity, uh, you know, especially to concentrate our mind when we're doing, the, in kirtan, when we're doing the, the items of our specific sadhana, but even to fix our mind on the Lord, Mam Anusmam Yujicha, during our daily activities. And then we will understand the Lord. We will 
we will have a, an actual experience to a large degree of the Lord, and then we will achieve what we want to achieve, which is a very elevated state of devotional service. So, um, as, as I'm doing here, I have a program with the family. In six minutes, I could just take a few questions. Do you want to answer the questions in the chat? Oh, let's see. It looks like this. How many in the chat? Isn't there a difference between a full-time temple devotee being paid for the devotional service, but they are really receiving as a minimum maintenance stipend for personal expenses and being paid a big salary for enjoying material life? Um, well, sure. On a Srila Prabhupada didn't mind people being given maintenance, and he didn't want people being a, give, a big salary. But that difference is much more from the point of view of the purity of the institution rather than the consciousness of the person. So if I'm doing service in a temple and my, uh, as my career and I'm relishing the craft of my career and part of the thing I relish is, is vairagya, so I'm actually relishing the fact that I have you know, just my little room and my stipend. And I, I'm relishing the, uh, my, my craft to be able to live like that. Then really, I'm doing it as a job. <laughs> and if someone's getting some, some large amount of, of money, let's say you have somebody who's a very famous kirtanier and they're, maybe they're making millions and millions of dollars by doing kirtan, but they're using it all in service and they're relishing the name, they're not relishing their musical craft, then they're not, they're not a professional kirtanir. So it's, from the point of view of the institution, the institution should not be in the business of paying large amounts of money to people for service. The institution should be in, in the business uh, of, of giving people just the bare minimum in exchange for service. That's not the business of a spiritual institution. So, therefore, the institution should not be in a position of, of paying salary. Sometimes legally it's necessary or whatever, but that, that shouldn't be the business of the institution. On an individual level, though, it's a different thing. We're talking about the, an individual. Should an individual maintain themselves through something that is service? That's a different question. I hope that, I hope that I've made that clear. I mean, you, you can think of it, you know, as, as an individual, like, like a sacrifice without remuneration to the priest is in the mode of ignorance. So if, if someone is, is doing some service and you don't remunerate them in any way, then what you're doing is in the mode of ignorance. And if you're, if you're a spiritual institution and you're taking the donations that you receive and you're using it, to maintain the people of the institution in great opulence, then that's at odds with your aim as an institution. Well, I, I was just thinking of like the days, you know, like as the Brahmatrinis or Brahmacharis, and you'd, you'd have to go and beg the temple commander for, you know, a little tube of toothpaste or, um, you know, just, just some necessity, and they may 
deny you and well, that you. that shouldn't be like that. That's that sacrifice that's without I mean. remuneration to the priestess in the mode of ignorance. So yeah, and so now temples these these days that they may give, let's say for you know every full time live in devotee, maybe like seventy five dollars a month, just so they can you know just get the bare necessities that they need and you know but there will be devotees outside of ISKCON that criticize that saying oh they're being paid but it seems to me that you know it's just solving a lot of problems with just um, well I don't know I mean even in the early days of ISKCON I mean what I was a treasurer in Chicago and in Boston and we used to give people you know some money every week so they could buy personal necessities without having to go through the temple. You know, I, I used to do the shopping for the devotees. That was okay. one of my services. But, you know, you're not going to buy underwear for people. You know, for some things you want to give people their own money and you want them to buy them themselves. But that, that's, again, that's really another question. So oh, okay. it, it's, it's really a different topic. How should a spiritual organization take care of the people who do full-time service for that organization? How should they? How should they make sure that they're compensated? Because if I'm doing full-time service for an organization, I don't have the time or the energy to have another means of maintenance. And if right. if, uh, if you if a spiritual organization doesn't compensate its full-time workers in any way whatsoever, then the only people who can do full-time work are people who you know like got some big inheritance or something, because they they right. wouldn't have any time. Um, Ramananda, your question is, it's, that's going to be part of my forthcoming book, and so you'll simply have to wait. Uh, sorry. So that's... Uh, anyway, so that, that's, a, that's a, a very... A, I see it as a practical managerial question and also a question that has to do with the integrity of the organization. With any charitable organization, if more than a certain percentage is going to maintain the workers then people consider it unethical. If you have a charity or religious organization, the idea is that the, the, the workers are receiving a very small percentage of the donations that are given. That's like your, that's standard ethics in, in fundraising, and there's, there's legal things and, and that sort of thing. At the same time, if someone's a full-time worker, they obviously have to be maintained in some way. So that's, that's an institutional consideration. But looking at it from the point of view of the individual, should I be maintained, should my, my service be a means of maintaining me? So if you say, well, my means of maintaining myself is as a teacher. That's how I live. I'm a teacher by profession. Or I'm a musician by profession. So if I were to spiritualize that and just teach about Krishna and just sing songs about Krishna it would still be my profession. So I'd still need to be maintained by it. And then the question becomes, in my level of consciousness, am I doing it as a means of maintenance, which I'm trying to purify, or am I doing it as a means of service that just happens to maintain me? And the difference is whether or not one is trying to relish the craft of one's work oneself in terms of the kinds of prosperity in rasa or whether one is trying to relish Krishna's happiness and is, is trying to relish the rasa of pleasing Krishna and has excellence in one's craft simply for that purpose. 
So I hope that's a clear distinction. I need to go now because our program is starting. All glories to Shilaprabhupada. Hare Krishna.